Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Uh, welcome to everybody here in the auditorium. Welcome to everybody over in the venue. Welcome to anybody watching online. And a special welcome to anybody that you're here because your kids came to VBS this week. And you was like, I'm going to check this out. We're so glad that you're here with us today. A special thank you to all the volunteers that made VBS possible and to Pastor Kent and his team. It was a fantastic week. So we are going to be continuing our series in the Minor Prophets Major Message by digging into the prophet of Joel. And as we begin, would you pretend with me that we live in an agricultural society? Now, I know this is not a hard stretch because we live in Nebraska, and so it's fairly agricultural out there. But pretend with me that all of our livelihoods, every single one of our jobs, all of our families, all of our incomes or careers depend on agriculture whether it's growing grain, whether it's growing grapes, whether it's growing some sort of fruit, or whether it's growing olives to make olive oil. All of our roles, all of our jobs, all of our careers are tied to agriculture. And we go out one day, we go out to our fields, to our orchards, to our vineyards, and we hear this buzzing. It says low buzzing. It's like, this is weird, what is that? And as the day goes on, the buzzing gets louder and louder and louder until over this hill nearby, this black cloud comes up over the hill. I'm like, what in the world? Then it gets louder and louder and louder until we realize it's locusts, it's grasshoppers, and it descends on our orchards, on our vineyards, on our crops. And there's so many of them, we can't swat them away, we can't get them to get away, we have to just leave. We go back and we just hope there's gonna be something left when we go back in the morning. So we go back in the morning and there's still some leaves on our trees, still some grain out in the field. But then we hear another buzzing. And for four consecutive days, locusts come up over the hills and they descend on our crops, on our orchards, on our vineyards until there's nothing left. And if you know what it's like, maybe you're a farmer and you've had your crops hailed down. And I hope and I pray that didn't happen last night because this is really close to home if that's the case. But I hope that didn't happen. But at least now we have crop insurance. We have some way we can get something out of it if it gets devastated. But in Joel's day, there's no crop insurance. If the crops fail, if the orchards fail, the fields fail, we're left to go, what are we gonna do? What do we do? And so this is what happens in the book of Joel. And Joel enters into this devastation where the people of Judea have been devastated by locusts. And they are dependent totally, sorry, they're dependent totally on these crops. Not just for their livelihoods, not just for their food source, but also for their worship that they would make grain offerings along with their animals when they made offerings. They would pour out wine as drink offerings when they made their offerings. They would cover it all in olive oil. So they're not even able to worship properly. And so Joel is gonna speak into this and he is going to use this as an opportunity to call them to repentance. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Joel and what we're gonna find out is that Joel is going to tell us that God's judgment or discipline, if you want to think of it that way, should lead us to repentance and restoration before greater judgment comes. That this is the big idea of Joel. 
is that God's judgment, these moments when we experience God disciplining us in our lives, it should lead us to repentance, to turn away from what we're doing that is evil or wrong or not in alignment with God's will for our lives. And we should return to him in repentance. And as we do that, restoration follows. And it's so important that we do this because if we choose not to do this, we choose to ignore God's call to repentance, then greater judgment will come. So let me pray and then we'll dig into the book of Joel. Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. God, I thank you for the offer of restoration. That God, when we get it wrong the first time, God, you're not done with us. But instead you offer us these opportunities to repent and to be restored. And God, I pray for my friends in this room that there are some of us in this room that need to be led to repentance. Lord, as we read Joel, would you lead us to repentance? And for some of us in this room, we need to be led to restoration, that we, we believe that what we've done is too great and too evil to experience restoration. Lord, I, I pray that they would hear the truth, that God, you restore what has been broken. And God, would you help me to be clear and concise this morning and to, uh, to listen to you and to deliver your message rightly. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to be in Joel chapter 1, verse 1. So the easiest way to find it is really to look in your table of contents, find the page number, and to go to that page number. But if you want to use my not yet patented flip method, you can flip along, and you're looking for Daniel and Hosea. And once you get to Hosea, it starts to slow down because Joel comes right after that. If you get to Malachi or Matthew, you flipped too far, go back to the left. Um, but Joel chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And what that verse says is the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. So Joel is the prophet. And what it says to us is this, what we're going to read is not Joel's opinion. It's not something that he thought this would be a good idea to write down or this might be helpful to people. What he's saying is, this is what God gave me as a message to give to the people of Judea. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that Joel doesn't give us the kings that are reigning while he is delivering these messages. So a lot of the other prophets, most of them, will say, this is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea during the reign of King Ahab or Ahaz or Josiah tell us when he was working. But Joel doesn't do that. And so this leads Bible scholars to end up in two different camps. So one says that because he doesn't say when this is, they have to take a guess and they guess most likely this is happening before the exile before the people of Judea are taken into exile by the Assyrians and Babylonians and they're removed from Jerusalem and this area of Israel. And so that's one idea, is that it's pre-exile. But then the other group would say, no, this is post-exile. And the reason that they're not saying that there's any kings is because there's not any kings. That Israel doesn't have kings anymore because they're they're ruled by foreign kings. And so they're saying this is taking place after they return from being removed from Jerusalem by uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Um, I think most likely as I read the book of Joel and as I read other Bible commentators or I read Bible commentators, that it's most likely pre-exile. That Joel was going to warn them about what's going to happen to them if they don't respond to God's warning. 
So then we go to verse four. In verse four, we hear this. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And so we have four different locust swarms that come through. And now I don't know if it's four consecutive days or it's four consecutive weeks or months or years or if it's all in one day. Um, In the story I told you in the beginning, I made it four days, but I don't know what it is. But four different locust swarms come through the nation of Judea and it devastates them, devours everything so that there's nothing left. They don't have grain, they don't have grapes, they don't have olives, they don't have figs, they don't have anything left. It's been devoured and destroyed by these locusts or these grasshoppers. And so into this, Joel is going to use this natural disaster as an opportunity to call the people of God to repentance. And so what we see here is that when natural disaster strikes or disaster strikes, it's an opportunity for us to look at our lives and say, is there something that I need to repent of? Is there something that God's trying to get my attention about? That I know God has been saying to me, this is not right in your life. And he is finally getting my attention to say, you know, you're right, God, I need to do something different. And so Joel is going to step into this and say, this locust worm, this is God telling us we're not doing what's right. We need to return to him. But God's ultimate goal in all this is restoration. His ultimate goal is that people would turn away from what they're doing that is wrong and turn back to him in trust and faith. And this is true for us today, that I've experienced this um, through Hurricane Katrina. So I'm guessing that all of you know about Hurricane Katrina back in the mid-2000s. This hurricane struck New Orleans and it devastated New Orleans. And uh, the EFCA, the, the denomination that we're a part of, they send these things called global response teams or crisis response teams. And so different teams go and they help when this devastation happens. And so the first teams, they go and they clear out the debris, clear out the destruction. And so I heard stories about um, places where there was mud like three feet and four feet high in people's homes and they had to gut people's homes down to the studs so they could dry out so then other teams could go back in and hang drywall and do finishing work and all that kind of stuff. And I was part of that second team and we get to go in and do siding and drywall work and stuff like that. And what was amazing to me was story after story of people whose lives were being restored because of Hurricane Katrina that they had either no connection to the church or no connection to God, or they had very little connection. And then this hurricane hit and it devastated them, destroyed their home. And they didn't know what to do. What were they going to do? And then into that, the church showed up. And Jesus showed up through the church and these hands and feet of Jesus began to tear out what's been destroyed in their homes begin to restore what was broken. And in this, they begin to say, I want to know more about this Jesus. I, I want to know more about who, who are these people and who is their God that they would leave all over the country to come to New Orleans to help me. And so there's story after story of people that had nothing to do with God before Hurricane Katrina. And then Hurricane Katrina hit and they said, I, I want to be part of this family of faith. And so this is just an example of God using disaster to bring people to a place of repentance and restoration. 
And so this is what Joel was going to do. He's going to say, this is an opportunity for us to repent, an opportunity for us to be restored. And there are opportunities where it's not just, I have to repent. That there are times and places where it, there's no repentance that's needed. But what it is, is just an opportunity for God to shape and to mold us to be more like Jesus through trial and difficulty. But that's not what's going on with Joel. Joel is going to call them to repentance. We see this in verse 13. So verse 13, he says, Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So Joel first starts talking to the priests and he says to them, we need to gather together and you need to put on sackcloth. And this is just a, a visible, tangible expression of mourning, of grief, of repentance. But then he goes beyond that and he says that we need to declare a fast. We need to call a sacred assembly. We need to gather the elders and everybody who lives in the land to come to the house of God, to the temple. And they need to cry out to the Lord. They need to repent. Then we, Joel doesn't give the specifics of what they need to repent of. But we know from the other, uh, the other prophets that they were committing idolatry. That they were not uh, wholehearted in their devotion to God. But instead, they were divided, and they were worshiping God, but they're also worshiping all these false gods, these gods of stone and metal and wood, and they're saying, this is God. And he's saying, we need to get rid of all of that, and we need to return with a whole heart to God. And so the first takeaway we have from the book of Joel is that the right response to God's judgment is to repent. The right response to God's judgment is to repent. Now, you know when God's judgment is coming into your life because you know what you're doing that's wrong, that you've, you've felt the Holy Spirit convicting you for a while, and then what happens is something finally breaks in you to go, yes, okay, fine. Yes, I need to do something about this. And when you experience that, the right response is to repent. The right response is to say, God, I'm sorry. God, you were right. I agree with you about my sin, that what I've been doing is wrong. I want to turn away from that and turn back to you in trust and faith. So Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not, do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience is that God disciplines his children. That when we trust and believe in Jesus, we become God's children, but he disciplines us. Because he cares about us. Because he wants us to stop doing what is wrong and evil and he wants us to do what is right and good that he wants us to be able to reflect God's good character to the world around us, not only for the world around us, but for our own good, that it is better for us when we follow and obey God, that it leads to uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, that the Holy Spirit grows that in us as we walk with him. And so he disciplines us towards that direction. 
And so when we experience God correcting us, we experience his discipline, the right response is not to fight against him and to say, no, I'll do what I want. I can keep going in this direction. The right response is to turn and to repent. And so Joel was gonna call them to repentance. But then Joel pivots. So the first chapter is about the locust swarm and it's about what's happened to them already and calling them to repentance. But then he pivots and he begins to look off into the future and begins to warn them. So in Joel chapter two, verse one, he begins to describe uh, this invasion. Now, this is another difficulty because depending on how you interpret the rest of the book, it affects how you interpret these passages. Because some people read this and they say this is a locust swarm and it's a greater locust swarm than the ones they've already experienced. And this further one's gonna come and gonna cause greater and further destruction. But other people read this passage and they go, no, it's not talking about a literal locust swarm, it's talking about an army. It's talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians that are threatening to invade, that are off in the distance. And, they're, and Joel is warning that if we don't get right with God, if we don't repent, this army is going to invade like those other locusts invaded. And it is going to be far worse because it's not just gonna be our crops that are devastated, it's gonna be us that are devastated. And I think that's what he's getting at. I think that he is using the imagery of the locust to describe this army so they can attach the two together and they can feel the weight of what this army would be like. So here's what he says, chapter two, verse one. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. He's saying, wake up, like, be on guard. We need to do something. Warn each other. Warn others. This is not good. This day of the Lord, this day of judgment is coming if we don't change. Verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. It's this lush garden. It's green and great. But behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. 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 Uh, can't say that word. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. He forces, his forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And so the picture that Joel is painting with, these, with his poetry is this sweeping mass that is devouring the land as it approaches and what leaves behind is nothing just destruction 
And then at the very end, you find out that the Lord himself is leading this army in judgment against these people. Because Joel was saying, you refuse to return to him with a whole heart. You refuse to turn away from doing evil. You refuse to keep your covenant that you made with, you made an agreement, you made a promise that you were going to be God's people and he was gonna be his, he was gonna be your God. And you've not held up your your part of that. And so he is going to judge you for this. So then he calls them once again to repentance. Verse 12. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend or tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So what he says is, we need to repent. He says, turn even now to God and God will rescue us. He says, turn now and God will restore. God will help. He says, but we have to be real in our repentance. It can't just be lip service. It has to be a broken-hearted repentance. He says, so they would tear their clothing as this act, this visible, tangible act of repentance. But he says, what God wants is not torn clothes. He wants broken hearts. He wants hearts that would look at their sin, look at what they've been doing to God, who's been faithful to them and good to them. He has provided for them. He has defeated their enemies. That throughout their history, God has done nothing but good towards them. And they have said, we don't care about you, God. We'll do whatever we want. We'll worship false gods that want nothing to do with us. We'll sacrifice our kids to these gods. We'll do whatever we want, God. And he says, I want you to look at that and be broken over your sin. Say, how could we do this to our God? How could we do this to someone who's been so faithful to us, been so good to us? He says, this is what I want. And then he says, if that happens, he says, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. He says, the character of our God is so great and good that he will relent. If we are sincere in our repentance, sincere in turning away from doing what's wrong and to turn back to God with whole hearts, that he will relent. He will rescue us from this army. He will rescue us from this destruction. He says he will leave a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings, these things that we're lacking so that we can't even worship him properly. He says he will leave these. It's possible that he would leave these for us. And so the second takeaway we have from Joel is that God relents and restores when his people repent. God relents and restores when his people repent. That God's purpose in bringing about these moments of disaster is not to destroy for the sake of destroying. It is to lead to a place of repentance so that restoration can come. It is a moment of discipline to say, do you understand that what you're doing is going to lead to destruction? That I'm letting you experience a little bit of what your actions are bringing, the reaping that Pastor Adrian talked about a few weeks ago, of what you're sowing, this is what you're going to reap. And if you don't stop sowing differently, you're going to reap something far greater, far worse. 
But God relents. He restores when his people repent. So then he begins to paint this beautiful picture of the restoration. Verse 18. So Joel 2, 18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go go up, its smell will rise. He says, I will defeat these enemies. I'll push some of them into the sea, some of them into the desert. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains, because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And so he's painting this wonderful picture of what has been destroyed, regrowing. Where there hasn't been rain, now there is rain. Where it hasn't been green, it is green and lush. And where there has been empty containers for their wine, for their olive oil, where their threshing floors have been empty, now there's abundance. It's overflowing, it's filled. What you have lost is being restored. And then verse 25 He says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So going back to verse 25, where he says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. That I know that there are men and women in this church that I've heard from over the years who would raise their hand and say, that's true. That I have experienced God restoring the years that the locusts ate. Now, it wasn't a literal locust swarm in their life, but they would say, if they could share their testimony, they would go something like this, that I, I did what I wanted for years, in some cases decades, until I had burned every bridge in my life and I had destroyed so much of my life, and then finally disaster got to the point where I just said, I can't do it anymore, God. You got my attention. What do you want from me? And he said, I want your heart. And so they turned in trust and faith, and they said, you can have my life. What's left of it, you can have it. And what they experienced was the beginning of the restoration, where God began to give back the years the locusts have eaten. And they would say, things that I, relationships I never thought would be restored have been restored. Things that I never thought could be put back got put back. And so there are people that I have heard from throughout my time here who would say, this is true. 
the things that have been destroyed in my life have been restored in some way, shape, or form. Now, I don't want to give you um, false hopes because there are instances where they're not restored the way they were before. There are some times when bridges have been burned so badly that they just can't be restored the way they were before those bridges were destroyed. But God still brings restoration where maybe the damage was so bad that the original family that you lost, it can't be restored in the way that it was before, but what can be restored is that you have a new family through the family of faith that is the church. That you would say, I have brothers and sisters I have spiritual moms or dads, spiritual grandparents that have come around me in my life and where before I had destroyed my life to the place where there was nobody that I thought on the entire planet that cared about me. Now I have a family that cares. And in some miraculous situations, even those sons, those daughters are restored where they said, you know, I thought my kids would never talk to me again because what I had done but this moment came where I just said, God, you can have all my life. And I began to follow him. And it wasn't instantaneous, but over years of following him and, and my kids beginning to see that I'm a different person, there began to be some restoration there. And so what I hope that you see, one of the, the unique things about Joel is Joel says restoration is possible. That there is hope that God's desire is not destruction, it's restoration. But it comes on the other side of repentance. So at the very end there, in verses 28 and 29, he begins to talk about pouring out his spirit. He's talking about pouring out his spirit on his people and then prophesying. And if you uh, know about the book of Acts, there's this day called Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit enters into the lives of God's people and they begin to uh, speak in these languages they didn't know and begin to um, share the gospel with people of all different um, languages from, that are gathered in Jerusalem. And what this is, is this picture of God's people's complete restoration. Because we have been created to be in a relationship with God where we know him and he knows us and we are together. And Adam and Eve in the very beginning had this relationship but they are separated and the rest of us are separated from God when we rebel from him. But in this moment at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit enters into their lives, it is a picture of complete restoration to God. Not just where he can reside in a temple and they could go talk to him or they could go and make sacrifices, but now they become the temple where God restores and he enters into them and lives with them. And so this is the restoration that is offered to us, offered to anybody, is that you were designed, you were made to be in a relationship with God and our rebellion, our sin separates us from that. But when we repent, return to God, then God enters into our lives and this complete restoration comes. And so maybe you've been listening this whole time going, well, what does this mean for me in 2022? Like, this is great, but I, I pray and I hope that we don't have locusts devour my garden, but like, that happens, I know where to go now. But what else am I supposed to do? And so this leads to our third takeaway. Because Joel is sitting in between these two moments where he's looking back at one destruction and he's warning them about a greater destruction to come. 
And we are at a new time and a place where we look back at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And we also look forward to this promise that Jesus has made that he's going to return and he's going to bring a lasting judgment. And so Joel reminds us in our day that Jesus' sacrifice, it should lead us to repentance before a lasting judgment comes. That it should lead us to repentance before lasting judgment comes. We look back at Jesus, his death on the cross, what he endured for us, where God judged him in our place. He poured out the wrath that we earned with all of our rebellion. He poured it out on Jesus and Jesus took our place. And that that should say to us that God is serious about this, that God takes sin seriously. And so we should take it seriously and we should turn away from it and turn to God in repentance and trust and faith before lasting judgment comes because Jesus tells us this day is coming when he is going to divide his people from everybody else who says, I don't want anything to do with you, God. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And this day is coming where he's gonna say, all right, if you don't want anything to do with me, that's fine. You have nothing to do with me. Experience what it's like to live in a world without me, where there is nothing but torment and destruction and evil And the Bible calls this hell. And this is the destination of those who refuse that they're gonna go into exile, but it's not gonna be for 70 or 80 or 90 years. It's gonna be for eternity. And so Joel stands here and it's this reminder to us in our day that we should take repentance seriously. So in Romans 2, verses three through five, Paul is writing and he says this about repentance. He says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So what was happening is there was a group of people that were looking over here and seeing this other group of people and they were doing evil and they were going, that's evil. But then they were turning around and they were doing the same thing those people were doing. And he's saying, do you not think that you're going to experience God's judgment for doing the same thing that you were able to say that's evil? Then he goes on in verse four, he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? He says, do you, you misunderstand, God is not judging you right now because he wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to him in trust and faith so that you can avoid the judgment, the destruction but you're misunderstanding, you're just going, God doesn't care. God's fine with me doing these evil things. It's fine, it's no big deal. Look, he's not doing anything to me. And they're going, you're missing it. That it's to lead you to repentance that he's not doing this right now. Then verse five, he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, because you have a stubborn, unrepentant heart, You're refusing to acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong. You're refusing to turn to God and trust in faith. He says, all you're doing is storing up wrath. And this day when God's gonna say, enough is enough. And that wrath is gonna be dispelled on you because you refuse to say, I trust in Jesus and it was gonna be transferred to him instead. So what do we do? Two things. The first is repent that perhaps you're in this room and you're hearing this and as you're hearing this, you go, I've never repented. 
I've never said, God, I need your help. I've never said, God, you're right, that the things that I've done in my life, they're, they're sin that I need you to help me with. I need you to deal with. I need you to forgive me from, for. If you've never taken that step, would you please hear the warning that Joel is giving now? Do it today. You never know if you have tomorrow. Tomorrow is not promised to us. That too often what people feel like is, I'm gonna live my life, and then when I get maybe 80 or 60 or you know, some point where I feel like I, I might not have tomorrow, then, I, then I'm gonna do business with God. But I'm just gonna live my life until then. And there's no guarantee that you're gonna get to be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 150, however long you think you're gonna live. There's no guarantee. And so today is the day to say, I need to do business with God. But if that's not you, because I know there's many in our church that they've already made that step. They've already said, God, I need your help. Would you rescue me? But I wonder how many in this room, do you understand that restoration is possible? Do you know that God wants to restore what has been broken? Or do you think to yourself, I've messed up too much for God to fix my life? All I can hope for is, is heaven. I just have to endure here on earth and endure my mistakes. And, and there are certainly consequences. But God wants to restore the years the locusts ate. God wants to make new what has been broken. And it might not be exactly what you lost, but God wants to make new in your life. He wants to make things new. He wants to restore. He is about restoration, not just destruction. He doesn't destroy just to destroy. He destroys, he breaks so that we would come to a place of repentance so that restoration can come. So my hope is that if you have been saying to yourself, restoration is not possible for me, you would look at Joel and you would look at what he's done for those people and you would say, he could do that for me too. Would you pray with me? Father God, God, would you help us? God, we confess to you that we don't like to say that we're wrong. God, we confess to you that we don't like to say that we need your help, that we wanna be self-sufficient people. And God, this is hard. God, we have divided hearts far too often. Lord, would you please help us to have undivided hearts that are wholly yours? God, for my friends in this room and the venue online that need to repent, God, that maybe things have been difficult in their life and they haven't been able to understand why, and this morning they're hearing, it's because you're trying to get their attention because you want them to repent before something worse happens. God, I pray that they would say, God, I need you. Would you forgive me a sinner? And God, I, I pray for those in this room who need restoration. That God, they, they feel like they ruined their lives when they were in high school or they're in college or during their first marriage. And they just feel like I've broken my life beyond fixing. God, would you hear their cries? Would you hear the cries of your people? 
who are saying, restore me a sinner. Make me new. God, would you restore what I've broken? Would you restore the years the locusts have eaten in my life? Like, God, I want to be made new. I, I know that sometimes there are things that can't be made exactly the way they were, but God, you make good lives. You make good things. And God, our lives are not just about, they are not about being saved and then waiting to die so we can go to heaven. It is about becoming who Jesus is making us now and reflecting the goodness of who he is. It is telling his story and reflecting his goodness now. And part of that goodness is that he restores. So God, would you make us trophies of your grace? Would you bring restoration to places that people don't think it's possible so they might be able to brag, they have a God who restores. Would you do this in our lives here and now? We pray this all in Jesus' name.